and doom, two highly emotive words often used in the media to grab your attention. But you have to ask yourself if there's any basis to the claims. In this episode, we dig deeper into the world of data analytics and how it can help you make better decisions with our guest, Martin North. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. We are talking to the man who has been referred to as one of Australia's biggest property bears. Martin North is a data guy, head of digital finance analytics and host of the hugely popular YouTube channel, Walk the World. Welcome to the show, Martin. But before, (laughs) thank you. But before we kick off, we do have a little tradition. Megan sits uh, in front of, behind her and her screen there is uh, always some strange little piece of architecture that she's managed to dig up from around the world. Um, those who watch us on YouTube can see it, um, although we've just realised that with the editing only just, so apologies for that. We're going to make, it, we're gonna make a, it full screen going forward. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is a particularly interesting little piece of uh, real estate. What the hell is it, Megan? This is, this is the house on the rock. Mm, appropriately titled in Serbia. And yes, can you if you can see it, there is a red canoe, and that is how they get to and from the house on the rock. I I I know that some people like their own company. I can understand that, but that would do my head in. It actually looks like it got left there after a flood. <laughs> so it's been carried downstream and then as the water receded, it's got stuck on a rock. Well, I want <laughs> to know whether it's high tide or low tide. <laughs> Yeah, if that's high tide, it must be horrible at low tide. <laughs> oh, very good. All right, Martin, there are many self-titled property experts out there who talk the market up to the point of almost looking like property spruikers. Now, it's really great to have a positive outlook, but in the intro, you know, Veronica mentioned property bear, and, and that is a term that has been applied to you. Um, mm-hmm. Let's break that down because we actually don't think it's a bad thing to have an, an opposing view. And, and in fact, Veronica referred to you as a contrarian, which it, you know, in basic terms means that you just take look at things from a different angle. Now, in 2018, you featured as the headline on a 60 Minutes property special about, and they called it doom. It was a massive, like just the whole screen was the word doom. Um, And in a brilliant piece of marketing for the show, they used the hook that they said that you predicted a 40% drop in Australian property prices. Now, of course, that's only part of a bigger story and they left out a lot of assumptions, a lot of context and a lot of other information. You weren't really talking about the whole country dropping 40% in value, were you? No, no, I've never have. And um, there's a couple of observations. The first is I run different scenarios. So I say, in this situation, if interest rates go up, this could happen. Or if, you know, global economy crashes, that could happen, right? And I actually have five or six different scenarios. Um, A range of different outcomes from significant growth in property prices at one end through to a possible price correction at the other end, right? Now, they choose to pick 
chose to pick the one that was the absolute worst case, which wasn't even my main case. <laughs> and whilst I explained to them when they made the recording that I was talking about a number of different scenarios, this is a good one, this, they just picked the, the really bad one, right? And in fact, um, the, the Media Watch um, picked it up afterwards mm. and actually basically said they misrepresented what I'd said, right? Because basically they picked this one hook, which from, a, I guess, a media cell perspective was you know quite powerful but it did actually completely mislead what i was trying to get at which is simply this prices can go up prices can go down it depends it depends on the circumstances it depends on the underlying drivers interest rates demand migration international economics all of those things right that it is not certain the prices will always go up just as it's not certain that prices might fall through the floor 40%. And then I made the other point that if you actually compare long-term ratios, so things like income to prices and those sorts of things, or debt to income, we're way over the long-term averages, right? About 40% over. So, you know, if things go off, then there is a chance that things could come back to long-term averages, which would actually then take them back down again. So that was the context for what became effectively a very famous um, misinformation strand. This has haunted me somewhat. Now, I don't mind too much. If it makes people think, think. twice and makes better decisions, because that's what I'm about. I'm trying to help people make better decisions. Just to be clear, I own property. I believe that property has the potential to be a very, very good investment, but also, very importantly, somewhere to live. And, and so I'm not anti-property, but what I am anti is all of this massive spruiking where everybody just says prices double every seven years, regardless, right, whether it's a unit, whether it's a house, whether it's in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, wherever, right? And then they actually they go on to say, and of course, in Australia, our market's different. They only ever go up. Now, maybe, maybe not. We need to get below that headline and really understand the dynamics to make good decisions. So that's what I'm about. So I think, Martin, you became famous in real estate circles probably around about that time. <laughs> and I know that a lot of people in the property game, it's like put a big black mark next to your name and an evil, evil man. And the reality is that when, when I first met you was when we interviewed you on The Elephant in the Room and I, and I fully expected to basically have an hour-long fight with you and then... <laughs> Realize the lead up conversations that you're like, I've got Martin North on, it's going to be a cracker. I know it's going to be a good one. This one, and found out that we were both singing from the same hymn book and we sort of left best buddies. And and (laughs) it's actually one of my proudest moments that because you know, if anyone, I'm staunch about a lot of things, as anyone who's listened to me for any length of time will know, and and I'm very opinionated. But, you know, I'm more than happy to have my opinions uh, challenged. And also, I'm always learning. And uh, and I love being wrong when it means that I can grow. And so that was, (laughs) that was a growing experience. Um, But I tell you what, it was funny that particularly that that uh, 60 minutes story, of course, it, 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 came at a time when the market was really um, on a downer, mm. you know, and so it, it, you, you, there were lots of those sort of headlines and that was particularly bad. And I know Louis Christopher, who's also another sort of well, well-known well uh, property data expert, he was also interviewed on that show and had very similar things to say. I think he tweeted immediately and so that was, you know, you're not the only the only person that uh, that happens to. Mm. And, you know, and he's probably at that point probably had more time in front of mainstream media than you as well. So it's not it's not like it was even, you know, a rookie era, can you say, you know, it was it was uh, easy to think that they might actually want to do it, run a proper story. But the thing is that headlines will scare. They'll scare going up. They scare going down. Even at the moment, we're recording this in October and I've, you know, and, and we've had a booming market now at despite everything for pretty much the last year it surprised everybody post covid but i've just started seeing the the doomers come out again and start start talking up a big crash right mm. and it's it's you know and and i know that in the newsrooms and and the editors for these sort of these publications and these shows they're in there going right well what what, what do people want to hear What's good for clickbait? What's all, you know, what is basically going to get eyeballs because of course they need eyeballs to actually sell advertising so I guess all these scary headlines, they're designed to get us, um, emo- you know, wound up. But is it possible to have a series of events 
coupled with poor fundamentals, right, that can actually lead to significant losses even when the rest of the market is booming? Well, yeah, the answer is absolutely, right? Um, You have to understand that the property market is not a single market, right? The property market is a series of micro markets and you can break it down by geography, by property type, and, uh, you know, a lot of different dimensionality. And if you take, for example, now, the story that everything has gone up is not true. I'll give you an example. North Ride units, they're down more than 20% from where they were two and a half to three years ago, mm-hmm. right? That's an example of a sub-market that's going in a completely different direction to standalone houses in, in Sydney, particularly, you know, on the beaches. Um, and that, that's quite wide as well, Mark, Marty. Uh, Marty. <laughs> Marty? <laughs> that's fine. Carry on. Whatever. My brother's right, name's Martin. And that's what I call him, Marty. I apologise. Not disrespect, Meg. Um, but right, Megs. <laughs> Megs is fine. Um, I did analysis of a, an apartment complex in Milton in Brisbane, which is just on, on the outskirts of the CBD, and I've on average they had sold at a 26% loss over the last three mm. years. So, mm. you know, there is real data to support, even in mm. this booming market, where house prices are rising almost... Well, I think we're about 20, 25, 26% in Brisbane. Um, you can still have those sorts of losses. Yeah. And, and the point is, the portals don't give you good information. So a lot of the publicly available information is distorted, right? Not least because they don't necessarily always disclose what prices went for. But if you actually go to the real data, which you can get in most um, uh, states, if you go to all the, the, the sold information, you can start parsing apart what's really going on, which is what I do. I mean, my analysis is, analysis is very granular, down to a postcode level and down the type of property within postcode, because that's the only way to understand what's going on. And even now, like I say, there are some areas booming, some, some, some not booming, but you wouldn't know from all of the public media mm. commentary over the last few months anything other than everything's booming, right? Mm. And I would remind you this, just over a year ago, CBA forecast a 32% fall in property prices. They weren't the only ones either. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like I'm the only one (laughs) getting tarred with the they can go down rush too, right? And look, you know, that you made the point earlier on, everyone's been surprised by the strength of the bounce. Simply put, it's because credit is the driver of property prices almost exclusively. I mean, other things are there too. But so when you cut interest rates to nothing and have very low mortgage rates, and when you have very loose lending standards, that drives up the size of the mortgage. So over the last year, I think the average mortgage has gone up by more than $80,000, many people much more. That's driven prices a lot higher. So it's a credit um, created event. Which is interesting because, of course, both the Reserve Bank and APRA say nothing to do with us, house prices. No, 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 no. Mm. Well, it is. It is. It's to do with interest rates and it's to do with um, credit policy. And, of course, APRA has now tightened just slightly mm. the, um, the, the standards. And they'll probably do a little bit more. Um, but it's interesting, again, how, you know, the, the top line story isn't necessarily the truth. You have to go granularly. You have to do the data and analytics to really understand what's going on. And that's really what I'm trying to say, really. Just get granular. Do the work. Don't just take on face value what a real estate agent says or what the portal says. Get into granularity and really understand what's going on. On that, one of the things we really like about you is your independence and, and unlike a lot of the other data analysts who, um, you know, might be sponsored by developers or mm-hmm. have hidden agendas, you, you, you don't have anyone pushing your agenda or pushing you in a direction. And, and you do a lot of sort of macro-level research, but let's talk a bit more about that granular-level suburb postcode research that you do because this is some really, really valuable information that first-home buyers can use, um, but they have to know how to use it, don't they? (laughs) Well, it's like anything, right? Data and information are not the same, right? Because data (laughs) is just a, a load of numbers on a page, right? Information is only useful if you can actually take that data and interpret it and translate it and understand what it really means, right? So context is everything. And, and what I try to do, and I, I publish um, monthly updates to, to my data set on a national basis to a postcode level, and I have some people who subscribe to get that. And I also have individual conversations with people when they want to go into deep granularity about a particular postcode that we can look at price trends and the types of property and, you know, things like planning and flooding and crime and all the other 
dimensionality that can drive it. Um, the, the point there, though, is you have to know what to do with the data. Otherwise, it just gets, frankly, in your head and then mm. you can't do anything with it. We get too much of it, don't you? Mm. I mean, it, even if you <laughs> you get into the information side of things, it's like, okay, cri- you, like crime. You mentioned crime statistics, for instance. You could get completely oh. fixated on that yes. and, then, and then actually end up making really bad decisions even then because you're trying to get a completely crime-free area and, and, but there's actually nobody living there. There's no population. <laughs> exactly. Or <laughs> um, what type of crime? You know, you, you want lots of house robberies, don't you, because that basically means that you've got people with high incomes living there that have got things worth robbing. I'm kidding. <laughs> But it's a good point because even one of, one of the things that you look at, Martin, that I really like is mortgage stress. You know, there's mm. not many suburb that, that that granular sort of information that you can get that's current. So if you look at that and you say, well, you know, um, 35% are under mortgage stress, is if that's a measure that you're going to use, you need to understand well, how does that relate to other similar populations is that high is it low mm. why are they under mortgage stress they have they got large mortgages what percentage of their income is being so that in and of itself is not actually a helpful piece of data or information to use if you don't have context and and things to compare it to no well that's right so mortgage stress is defined in cash flow terms money in money out so if you look at a household you know is more money coming in each month and they're spending on everything, including mortgage or, or rent. And if, in fact, they're actually in negative territory, well, that might be okay for a bit, assuming they can pull down on savings or grab credit cards or whatever else to get through. But if they go on doing that, they get into difficulty. And quite, quite often, if they've got equity, they then pull down equity and you know, carry the on a bit. The cycle right? goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, my experience uh, and analysis says that eventually, households that are in mortgage stress get themselves into a situation where it's very hard to get out of. Right, And the big change compared with the early 2000s is income growth. There's hardly any income growth now. Whereas in the early 2000s, when mortgage stress was quite high, we had very strong income growth. So people could hang in there mm. with confidence that they'd be able to actually afford and you know pull themselves out. It's not happening now. right? Mm. So what tends to happen is you see these pockets where a lot of households are in a rather similar financial position where their income is not covering all their costs. Now, they'll still pay their mortgage because the mortgage is sort of top priority, but it means they spend less. It means that they perhaps, in some cases, I've even seen go without some meals to be able to actually afford everything else. So it's a sign of the financial pressure on households. And where there are a lot of those in a similar situation, even a small interest rate rise, for example, could have Mm -hmm. a very adverse effect on those households and what they might do. Now, of course, over the last couple of years, we've had banks, frankly, bailing people out, essentially just saying, well, don't bother to pay your mortgage for a few months because of COVID. We've had very low interest rates. We've had you know, government support. So there's been a lot of support stuff going on to try and keep this property price bubble bobbling away. Some of that's now being removed, right? With government support being removed, with the banks now beginning to come to the end of their mortgage repayment holidays. And now, of course, with the talk of interest rates rising. So it could well be that in some places, some of this will come to be very important. But it's not saying that tomorrow, if there's, a say, a 45% level of stress in the particular postcode, everyone's going to fall over. That's never what I've said. But what you can do and what I do is I draw maps and look at differences of different types of areas, and I, I see common themes. And interestingly, if you compare high levels of COVID infection a few months ago in, in, in Sydney, say, with mortgage stress, guess what? Those two areas were completely coextensive. Oh, there's a correlation so there. Pla- places like Fairfield um, were some of the highest stressed and some of the highest infected. That tells you something about the nature of people in those areas and what they're having to do. Also, you know, it's yeah, causation versus correlation here, isn't it? So because, of course, something that we did discover throughout our most recent lockdown in Sydney and the fact that those LGAs have really had such high cases of COVID was apart from the fact that, you know, different ethnic groups, the way that they live, their larger households, but also the type of work that they did that they weren't able to lock down and actually work from home because of because they're more, more in, um, in those service roles and those uh, essential worker roles. So I guess what you're saying is that those sorts of roles don't actually have the same wages or the same incomes that different, you know, white-collar roles, for instance, and so that's really the 
the the the cause of both in a way um the type of work that they do results in less incomes results in the more fragility and i guess what we're talking about here is the fragility of certain areas in terms of the 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 price uh sustainability of those properties isn't it and 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 i guess where where this is particularly relevant for first home buyers is when they're looking at buying into areas like new buildings or new subdivisions. Yes. And and I keep looking at go, right, well, if everyone is of the same, roughly the same socioeconomic sort of background, they they probably have similar income, similar household sizes, similar age children, da-da-da-da. And they all buy at a similar time, they've got a similar size mortgage and you know, and a similar equity in the property. Then if there's going to be an issue that hits it's going to hit everybody equally and that's where you get mass sort of sell downs or you potentially get a mass sell down of property in an area mainly because everyone's in the same situation whereas in a, in a more established area we get someone who's lived in a property for 10 years next door neighbors lived there for 15 the next door neighbors lived there for 20 and the next door neighbors bought it yesterday then they're all going to have a different debt profile a different income like everything's going to be different about them is that fair to say and is that one of the reasons why this sort of mortgage stress um indicators or data is so important and to understand really what's gone into creating it in the first place well you'll see there's quite a few correlations so you know similar socio-economic factors different work patterns a lot of people in these high stress areas have multiple part-time jobs rather than a f- one single full-time job mm. and quite often they have to travel to work the other point there of course is a lot of those particularly the first-time buyers bought in quite recently which means they've got really big mortgages mm. which means they've got very little wriggle room whereas if you've been in um you know in in the same area for some time you've paid your mortgage down a bit you've got more more equity available so quite on quite often high t- low to value ratios i i call these the high growth corridors right and again there's high correlation between mortgage stress and the high growth corridors there is also high correlation of rental stress in those same areas right? can we, can we right. go so, to the word high growth corridor and just you i think your definition <laughs> might be vastly different to a spruker's definition of a high growth corridor uh, okay high growth corridor is where you've got lots and lots of new construction going on where you've got lots of subdivisions where you've got effectively you know land, home and land packages um being sold off and then the next um uh, the subset of divisions happen and they do another another load um you know uh, th- there are lots of places supply yeah and, and <laughs> around melbourne there are one or two areas like narrow warren for example where there's just remarkable growth over a long period of time and you just see this footprint extending 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 and you see the problems extending 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 because effectively you keep replicating the same issue and so the, when you buy new right your first first home buyer you buy a new homeland package you then have moved in it's not new anymore right but down the road there's another one another another set of packages and so suddenly you find that what you thought you bought you've bought something which is worth less than it was now you've still got that bit really big mortgage and then you start getting into some some you know quite difficult areas. so it's all part of this really weird dynamic which is why you have to go granularly you have to really understand the local dynamic and you have to really you know put your thinking cap on you can't just look generically Right? You can't even, you know, say southwestern Sydney versus, I don't know, you know, north Brisbane. You've got to actually go really granular to be able to actually understand what's going on. And, you know, in some cases, people hate that because they just want simple, you know, one, mm. one word yes. answers and they want simplistic, you know, internet led, you know, YouTube led decisions. But no, 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 you need to do the work. Do the work, please. Because the, the point that I keep making to people is if you make the wrong decision when you go in to buy a property, right? It, it's a decision that echoes down the years, right? Um, it's called a punctiliar action. So it's an action at a point in time, but with a huge downstream influence. If you buy the wrong property, you're going to be stuffed for a long, long time. So better not to make the wrong decision, do the work on the way in. And it's, it amazes me how many people spend more time looking for a new fridge or a new car online and spending a lot of research on that. But when they come to buying a property, it's... Uh, you know, a much well less um, thought through process and they don't use the data that's available and they just tend to sort of get swept up with the emotion of it and with the real estate team that's flogging them the property and nah, just please make 
time to make the decision sensibly. Uh, Martin, you know, your message and ours is so aligned, you know, and it's just like we're singing for the same hymn book. And the problem isn't, look, our listeners will be on board, thankfully. And if any of you out there are sort of still on the edge thinking, no, there must be an easy solution. And it's like, we'd love to be able to dish it out to you if there was one. We'd all be a lot richer probably if we could actually just issue out an easy solution or, or make up one that that sounded easy but it isn't you've got to put in the work and it's worth it it's worth it not just to avoid the mistakes but also to reap the benefits of good decisions Mm. but I've got this this sort of analogy that I use sometimes and it's like it's like I've got two plates in my hand and in one plate I've got a chocolate ball right on the inside of that ball is dog food but it's covered in chocolate and the other plate has piled heaps, it's heaped high with kale, right? Really healthy and green. And and I'm offering it to you and I'm going, look, that chocolate ball, it is, it's got dog food on the inside, but hey, you know, it's there. And this there's the kale, it's really healthy, no dog food there. And people, I reckon nine, ten hundred people will actually go for the dog food. Because they won't really believe there's dog food inside it. You know, it's covered in chocolate. It smells like chocolate. looks like chocolate. It is chocolate. They just can't possibly believe there's dog food on the inside. And and that's my theory for why so many people do fall for the simple solution because it sort of does look better on the outside and it does smell a little bit nicer on the outside. And it's an easier pathway to take because everybody knows what chocolate tastes like. Well, that's true. And the, the, the point is, the point is that, um, it is always the case that people want shortcuts and simple answers, right? And look, I'm quite amazed. On my channel, there are people now who advertise on my channel before my shows, right? <laughs> Basically saying, you know, I, if you want five properties and $60,000, I can help you build a property portfolio, <laughs> right? I mean, I hope that people see through that, but I worry that some people don't see through that because they still have this belief that because it's on YouTube, it must be right, right? I just wish, I wish, I wish people would take the time to do it right. Because if you make good decisions and buy a good property in the right areas at the right price point, you'll do very well, regardless of what happens economically, regardless of whether prices go up or down or sideways, right? But if you buy the wrong property, you know, the dog, <laughs> I'm going back to the dog food, um, <laughs> it remains a dog. And the problem is you then actually built a problem, not just now, but down the track. And I come back to this concept of the opportunity cost, right? If I've got a certain amount of money to buy property A or property B, and I actually go and buy by the wrong property, I've blown an opportunity to buy the right property. Yeah, exactly and it's right. the, the, the com- compounding growth that you miss out on over that period of time of buying property B versus property A. And, and I've got a real example of that when I um, bought my second property, which was my first property with my ex-husband. We had a, a choice between two properties, one that was not as good, smaller block of land, but far superior location. One that was a nicer house, really cute, you know, move in, love it, big deck in a secondary, wasn't actually a secondary location, just not as good a suburb. Um, and I've, I've tracked the resale of those properties over time. And at one point I was down about 800,000 compared to, you know, the decision that we'd made because we made a very emotional decision and we didn't know what we didn't know back then. It was well before I was in real estate. And, and I guess that's what we're trying to talk about here is there's so much access to information now. You can get this sort of information free and online, but you've got to know what to do with it and how to interpret it. And, and you know, we're in a rapidly rising market now and this is almost across the country. It's, it's unheard of that we see all capital city markets move in the same direction at the same time, usually there's there's lag and, and lead indicators with different with the different cities. But it is we have a generation now who are purchasing property who have a belief that this will continue and that this will continue in a positive and upward way. And, and I guess what what we'd like to make sure people understand is it isn't always going to go in a positive direction. Even if you choose an A-grade asset in an A-grade location, there will be ups and downs. But if you if you make the right decision, then you will outperform the market. So, Martin, what's your data telling you now about what's happening? Um, you know, is there any sort of insights you can give us about what your data is telling us? Yeah, I think there's three, three observations I'd make. Firstly, in some areas, prices are coming off now. So the high... Uh, short-term acceleration that we saw um, is definitely ebbing away. One example of that is there are are more examples now of vendors willing to settle a 
ahead of an auction rather than go to auction. It wasn't seeing that two or three months ago, now starting to see it. The second is that it's all about standalone houses, you know, blocks, um, often older properties. They're the ones that are still very much in favour. Um, that's still, still the same. The high-rise sector is absolutely still being flogged very hard. And in some cases, people are still losing a lot of money. And in fact, the uh, rental data that's just come out uh, over the last couple of days show that there's rental growth for houses is much stronger than for, for units. Third point is that regional areas have had a really significant kick up, partly because people have been looking further out, partly because they need to go to work in town every, every day. <laughs> I can, I'm concerned that we might suddenly see the regional stuff wobble the other way quite dramatically mm. now with the opening up. And I'm already seeing some early signs of some of that happening in some areas too. So, you know, th there, are, there are a whole bunch of indicators that suggest we are entering a more unstable environment. Plus, of course, APRA has now lifted that, um, you know, floor just slightly, but there is still more talk about more macro prudential and credit growth has been booming and people are concerned about the rate of credit growth. Even the banks are saying um, they're worried by how strong the credit growth has been. I think they're right to be worried. Um, but of course, they're talking their own book because they don't want the, the Reserve Bank or APRA to come in over the top and do stuff to them. So they want to try and <laughs> do it themselves to give them more flexibility. But the problem I have, and is this is the sort of, the, you know, the end of the story in a way, people are still committing themselves to very, very large mortgages in an environment now where, you know, prices may not continue at the same trajectory that we've seen in recent months and the interest rates might maybe go up a bit. So my recommendation very firmly is when you do your maths on what you can afford, don't just take the bank's word for it, right? <laughs> Run your own scenario and say, what would happen if, you know, my income got clipped or, you know, interest rates went up? How, how would I deal with it? Because you need to be comfortable that you you know, it shouldn't just be in perfection only that you'll be able to survive. If anything falls off, the, you know, the end of the log, then you're in difficulty. So it's worth playing those sorts of um, theories through. And, and again, I find it when I talk to people, find it, people find it very hard to do that, right? Because mm -hmm. they tend to be optimistic and they tend to oh, be fine, everything. We've got, we've got in Australia, we've got the, you know, she'll be right attitude, right? Uh, unfortunately, that can sometimes get, get get you into some difficulty because um, uh, I, I've been through four property crashes in the UK before I came to Australia, and I know what it's like to have lived through a property crash and seen value destroyed. It's not comfortable, but I'm still here. I've still got a property. Um, but if you've actually committed absolutely down to the last dollar and you've mm. baked this all in on perfection and perfection doesn't necessarily always follow, you've got a problem. I think too is that when you're worrying that you bought something that wasn't quite right, you know, in fact, literally through our support email, uh, somebody who listens to the podcast who may well be listening now has sort of has said, you know, they bought their first property. It was an apartment in Brisbane on the outskirts. They, they you know, said, look, I know we made a mistake now because basically we bought because it was cheaper to buy a two-bedroom than it was to rent our one-bedroom. And, and we get good rent for it, but basically no capital growth. And, and I've realised we've made a mistake. And so... As people do start to educate themselves, and quite often they will educate them up themselves after the okay. event mm -hmm. because they're less stressed after the event. They've done it. And then they go, all oh, right, well, now, now let's see if I made a good decision or not. A mm, little bit late after the event. But if you're sitting on something and you, and you do have that sort of niggle in the back of your mind, oh, I'm not really sure I made a good decision here. I'm not really sure I've got a good property. And then things get tight. And then you're sitting on it and you, you're staring at the, you know, the balance, how much you owe, what you think it's worth, or you can see another one selling in the building for less than you paid or that sort of thing. That's a very, very uncomfortable place to be versus if you know what you bought is a good asset, you know their scarcity, you know that even if it comes off the boil a little bit, it's okay because I know I still bought something that's good and will stand the test of time. That's a lot more comfortable place to be in times of stress, uh, you know. And I speak this from experience. I've been through <laughs> ups and downs myself in my property um, career and my property owning uh, journey as well. 
And there's been times when the market has really contracted a lot, and I've watched you know, my on paper value, my on paper worth, if you like, contract a lot. And there was one particular time where I didn't have very good cash flow for various reasons, and that was a pretty sticky time because if I I know that if I was sitting on assets that I was very uncomfortable with the quality of those assets, I would have felt a lot worse than I did. You know, so I can I can speak from experience here, and I think that that's one of the benefits from using data wisely to actually do educate yourselves, and as you say, put in the work. One of the things that I'm always curious about is like APRA's, you know, in the beginning of October, they they put in a um, a little bit of a restriction, the, the macro prudential uh, intervention, I think they call it, and that was to increase by half a percent the serviceability metric or measure. And that's, you mentioned it earlier. Now, so what that means is the bank has to calculate whether or not you can afford the loan based on now it's 3% over whatever their variable rate is or some banks apparently using fixed rates. But now I know most first home buyers probably feel like they're, they're stretched to the max even at the current interest rate. You know, so how does what's the, how what's the real definition of affordability then, Martin? How does that really work? Yeah, so remember that the bank is only looking at it from their risk management perspective, right? So they have to jump through certain hurdles, and those are set by APRA. It's it's not the same as a buyer being comfortable that they're actually committing to sell themselves something that, that that that's comfortable to them. Um, I always say to people, well, you what you need to do is you need to actually. Drop a bit of a cash flow so you understand what money's coming in, what money's going out. You know, remember, if when you buy a property, you've got things like um, <laughs> rates, repairs, you know, all the other running costs of a property. It's amazing how many times people just don't think about that. Mm. Um, so it's really important to sort of put some put some of those things together. Um, so in a way, the, the 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 sort of the mortgage affordability cr- calculation that the banks are doing don't help you helps the bank, right? What you need to do is to go through the process yourself to be able to understand what you can really afford, which then comes back to what I said about, well, maybe run a counterfactual. What would happen if interest rates went up a bit? How would that, how would, how would that happen? What would happen if you've got two incomes coming in, one of those incomes stopped for a, for a period of time? You know, could you cope? You know, how, how much have you got for emergency savings? It amazes me that um, nearly one-third of households have less than one month savings mm. accessible, right? Now they might have equity in the property and stuff, but but quite often they don't even have that. So so the trouble is that you can get yourself in quite quite deep, and often people just say, well, the bank said I could have the money, so they must have done the calculation. So you know why would I need to do anything different? No, it's a different calculation than the one that you need to do if you're a prospective um, uh, uh, borrower. And by the way, this trap of saying, well, you know. I could spend X on rent or I could spend X on a mortgage, right? That's only half the story because, of course, the the investment owner, the property investor owner, is paying all the other stuff for that property. Mm. Whereas if you've actually got a mortgage, you've got all these wraparound costs that you're committing to as well. Mm. And it's quite interesting when I ask people, so how, what have you assumed about you know, rates, repairs, you know, all of those things. Build and so insurance. Often, you don't pay that. Insurance is another mm. big one. And quite often people have just not done the work there. And, the, and one of the things I say to people, you know, when you when you think about a property, look at what the insurance premiums would be because that tells you something, right? So, for example, there are some properties close to floodplains that you can't insure or there are other areas where you can probably insure but you're going to pay through the nose, mm-hmm. right? Quite often people don't check that, right? Just as they don't check for structural surveys, asbestos you know there's a whole bunch of things and if you're buying high rise do the work on the strata management company and what you're up for there and all of the extra costs that could come through i mean there are lots of examples now of high rise where it's gone terribly wrong and people are suddenly having to commit to thousands and thousands of dollars Mm. just to sort of keep their property together or indeed go bankrupt i mean these are things that are avoidable if you do the right work on the way in. There's, there's two lots of um, sort of assessing how much you can afford too, and, and we talk about this quite a lot in the course, and, and that is it's ha- there's, there's how much the bank will lend you and, and they'll do their um, very in-depth assessment of, of what you can afford according to their criteria and they'll go through line by line at the moment on your bank accounts. And there's that very famous case um, 
the Wagyu and Shiraz right. case, you know, where a judge said, well, if I was going to buy a property, I'd just cut to, you know, I wouldn't have the Wagyu and Shiraz. I'd, I'd change my ways. So <laughs> it's not reasonable for you to assess me that way. I digress. But um, it, it, it is kind of relevant. But there's what the bank will lend you, and I don't know how many times we've had clients in our buyer's agency say the bank will give us X amount, let's call it a million dollars, the bank will give us a million dollars but we know that we can't afford to make the repayments on that, plus have a buffer, plus have a reasonable lifestyle. And so, therefore, we're putting in what we call a self-imposed limit on ourselves. So, even what the bank will lend you is not necessarily what you should borrow, is it? Because that can put you under so much more stress if you actually stretch yourself up to your complete limit. Well, that's the whole point. The banks are doing it from their particular perspective, not yours. And I'll make another point. Um, if you look at the average duration of a mortgage, it's got longer, right? You can quite easily mm. get now 35-year mortgages. Yeah. Why is that? It's because that reduces the monthly repayments, except you're just paying for a lot longer, right? And if you take an interest-only loan, and some people are being persuaded to do that at the moment, you're not paying the capital at all, so you're making a bet on what you think the future value of the property will be worth when you come to, come to sell it. Remember, the bank looks at you as a series of cash flows. That's all they're doing, right? You are a cash flow to them, providing that you go on paying month in, month out, month in, month in. That's all they care about, right? And it's worth just thinking about that because that's not necessarily how you think the bank would think about you if you're a prospective mortgage borrower. But they're not actually that concerned about whether you can pay back the capital or not. Mm. All they want is, will you service the mortgage you know, into perpetuity. And, of course, in China, there are 50-year mortgages, right? <laughs> Sorry, in, in Japan particularly as well, 50-year mortgages. Yeah, um, wasn't there a 100-year mortgage or something? And it's like, you know, it's now it's a multi-generational mortgage. Generational Imagine passing mortgage. that down to your kids. <laughs> Here you go, kids. Yeah. Here's your inheritance. Yeah. It goes back to the, what's in the chocolate bomb. Oh, yeah. another mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be worse uh, than dog food. But, but the, the, the point is, the banks are quite happy for you to go 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, right? If you go on making those repayments, because all they want is that cash flow. That's how they value their business, right? Well, it's but, like, a, it's like a, I'll draw the, the um, uh, parallel here to a real estate agency, right? So a real estate agent sells property and also has a, has a property management business. And the, what's valuable to the real estate agency in terms of what can they sell as a business as a going entity it's not the sales part of the business where that's lumpy and they may or may not have a good month but it's the property management where they're actually getting regular monthly income so it's a subscription business effectively and so what you're saying is that effectively we're all like the tenants for the banks yes (laughs) And, and i actually draw a very interesting parallel between paying rent and paying your mortgage Right, although the business model might look different, the net effect is the same. Now, hopefully, at the end of the day, if you actually ever pay the mortgage right off, and folks pay that mortgage down as quickly as you can, is my very strong recommendation. Despite low interest rates, gives you huge liberty later in life if you can do that. But many people aren't. Even to retirement, people are still holding their mortgages. Right, but if you go on paying into into um, you know into the future, it's actually no better than renting. Well, that's true. Effective, and it's actually you're trapped um, because it's a bit like getting married to someone um, instead of living with them. You know, like renting is like being de facto, and um, <laughs> buying is like a getting fall into this one. And that <laughs> is that that you know most people won't stay in that property for the term of the loan. They'll actually sell. In a lot of cases, they'll sell the property. So I think the the thing that people aren't taking into account sometimes when they take out a long term mortgage is they're saying, "Well, I'm not. It doesn't matter if it's twenty five, thirty, or thirty five years. I plan to sell this house in ten years and upgrade to a bigger one." So, so in that case, you know, they're looking at that from a short term thinking point of view and from a cash flow point of view. They can, if they take the longer term loan with an intent to pay it out before the end of the loan, then they may have, you know, the lower repayments along the way. But what they won't have done is probably paid down. And and the thing that doesn't maybe come into their thinking is they won't have paid down the principal as much and therefore won't walk away with as much equity. 
So that short-term thinking about I'm not going to, it doesn't matter if it's 35 years, I'm not going to be here in 35 years, I'll finish this mortgage by then. You've still got to take another mortgage out on the next property and then it will start to come into play as you come towards the end of your working life and the banks will shorten the term that they'll actually give you. Mm. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's really surprising in my surveys. I have more people now who have mortgages that are going to retirement and they've basically concluded with, well, I'm going to die and I'll still have the mortgage. I'm wow. never going to pay this mortgage off. It's actually a deliberate strategy. Right. That is so then quite that's shocking. Handing, handing it over but, to the kids. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. You know, it's funny actually you say that because we interviewed a guy named Brendan Coates on The Elephant in the Room. We've interviewed him a few times. He's an economist with the Grattan Institute. Really love the way he and his, his portfolio is like household income and superannuation, all that sort of stuff. Really interesting guy. And we had a um, conversation with him about the superannuation guarantee. So, you know, the argument about whether it should stay at 10% or go up to 12 like it was originally designed and mm. what he was saying was that if we retire and look i'm go back and listen find that episode anyone is interested in it's uh in the elephant in the room and he was basically saying hopefully i haven't got this wrong that if you retired without any debt the 12 percent contribution throughout your entire working life is actually more too much because you'll actually retire better off than when you're working right uh, however if it's what you're saying martin more and more people are retiring with debt. They're going to need a bigger super balance in order to be able to fund their mortgage um, throughout their retirement. So that's it's just it is rather interesting, and I think we all have to remember that you know there is a tomorrow. <laughs> we don't want to be like homos at you know Homer Simpson that says, "Oh, that's a problem for future Homer." I sure don't envy that guy. <laughs> yeah. And rem remember, of course, that a lot of people who've been renting through their whole life. And when they go into retirement, they're actually worse off still because yeah. they basically have no capital at all. Mm -hmm. And quite often there, the superannuation processes haven't really worked very well. So these intergenerational and, you know, these long-term things, it's worth thinking about early on. Mm. You know, you can't just say, well, you know, that's a problem for next year or 10 years down the track, unfortunately. Um, and quite often people make short-term decisions that are perfectly logical. But if you stand back and look at it slightly more um, strategically, it might not be the best thing to do. I was looking at um, insurance yesterday, just because it was inside super, I was sort of compared, making some comparisons and, and looking at a few different things. And one of the scary things that I, I saw in there was that um, the default um, insurance uh, within a lot of superannuation policies, you can opt out of well, you don't have to opt into if you're under 25. Now, if you've bought a property and, and there are a number of people who have got themselves into a position, they've, they've worked hard or perhaps they've inherited or there might be a gift somewhere and that they're under 25, it's really important to make sure that you dig in and you've got the right insurances because if you if you are um, joint ten, tenants uh, tenants in common with a, on a purchase with somebody and you pass away, then they've got to service your debt. So... It's just a bit of a side thing. We're talking about, you know, longevity of mortgages and so forth and being able to service them. Uh, make sure you've got your insurances right for income protection, life, total permanent disability, because you might assume that you've got one in, in your, your super fund or, or, or some other place. But, um, you know, that can be a real lifesaver for, for people who are left behind if you've got a mortgage. Mm. Well, they changed the rules quite recently because mm. previously it was automatically included. Well, now it's actually not automatically included for certain uh, classes of people who actually are saving into superannuation. Mm. So again, it comes back to you got to do the work, right? You got to think about what do you need, right? Mm. Uh, and again, you know, if you don't know, get some advice, because I've had so many people over the years that I've I've spoken with who've actually ended up with the wrong answer. Mm. Yeah. And you don't know until. It's too late, and that's yep. the problem, isn't it? Or, or at least until you've wasted a good ten years or something that if, yep. you know. And com the magic of compounding, which is so fantastic when it works for you, but it works against you. It's pretty debilitating. It's the same as um, you know. You never know whether your insurance comes any good until you actually put a claim in. Yes. <laughs> Just oh god, it's terrible. <laughs> it's the now, thing you need when you, uh, you don't need it until you actually need it, and then you really need it. Exactly. 
Now, Martin, Martin, you do a um, a walk the world uh, YouTube show every Tuesday night, right? And yeah. every now and then he gets Megan or myself on there to gab on about various bits of property. <laughs> we'll put the link into um, to his channel in the show notes here. Um, but also, um, you know, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about these sorts of things, Martin, because they are they are very important things for first time buyers to be considering. And unfortunately, what we do when we're when we're focus on such a huge challenge and we liken it to climbing a mountain and it is such a monumental challenge buying your first home there is so much information out there some of it good a lot of it bad a lot of it overwhelming and you know trying to get access and this is what we want to bring people into this podcast is access to people who really just are really practical pragmatic and actually not trying to flog some super system it's actually just really good advice that we can all learn from but one thing i know i know for all of us we're a bit long on the tooth here but can we can you cast your mind back and think what is there is there one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you're a first home buyer Mm. I think it would be this. I knew, now know that you can't trust what agents tell you. Right? <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I was expecting that one. You actually believe that? <laughs> I, I, I remember, you know, and, uh, you know, I, maybe I was naive and, you know, all that. Uh, I, I assumed that they were actually telling me at least some degree of the truth. Right? Some do, uh, you know, but it's hard yeah, to tell. I, but that's the point. Mm. That is the point. So I am now way more sceptical. So I would say it is worth being a little sceptical. Ask those extra questions, right? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, don't swallow it whole, right? <laughs> and frankly, um, that's advice that plays very well, not just in real estate, but it, banking, pretty much everywhere else you, else you look. It's worth taking that second look. It's worth just pausing and thinking and saying, well, Okay, what's motivating those people to say the, what they're saying? Right? Mm. And what's, what's missing from what they're telling me? Now, those are both quite difficult questions. But for me, if I'd known that earlier in my life, I think I would have probably made a better decision. Mm. Two really good questions. Mm. What's motivating them? What's missing? I love it. That's great. Martin, thanks for joining us really enjoyed speaking with you both in this episode we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers if you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake then head over to our website www.homebuyeracademy.com.au don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff. <laughs>